KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today, we are talking about gender equality in sports. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. A Title IX lawsuit against SDSU over financial aid disparities between men's and women's athletics gets the green light. So what are the implications? It could very well set a standard that changes in the way female and male varsity sports are funded and how those funds are allocated. Plus, how representation in women's sports is changing, and we highlight the Wave FC's season. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. A Title IX lawsuit against SDSU will go forward after a San Diego federal judge ruled that a number of female student-athletes will be able to seek damages after receiving less money in scholarship funding than their male counterparts. The ruling could have major implications in how current and former athletes seek damages from their universities and how athletic scholarships are doled out. Joining me now to break down this first-of-its-kind ruling is legal analyst Dan Eaton, partner in the San Diego firm of Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek. He also teaches business ethics and employment law at San Diego State University. Dan, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jade. And in that line, let's be clear that I'm only giving my own opinions, and these opinions are in no way associated with SDSU. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, you know what? My first question is, what is Title IX? That's a really important question because Title IX is a 1972 federal statute, which specifically says, and I'm just going to quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefit of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, period, close quote. Now, a lot of the attention on uh, Title IX has been in the field of athletics, but it is in no way limited uh, to uh, collegiate athletics. So it's not limited to athletics. How far reaching is it? Well, where we get into athletics are the regulations uh, that that the uh, Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, which uh, enforces this particular uh, statute, uh, that uh, those regulations that the department has issued since the enactment of of the law itself. And and one of those regulations uh, says that no person shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, be treated differently from any other person or otherwise be discriminated against in any interscholastic, intercollegiate club or intramural athletics offered by a recipient, meaning the school, which gets federal funds, and no recipient school shall provide any such athletic separately on such basis, close quote. So the bottom line is that athletics in Title uh, IX and the regulation of it comes in through the regulations. 
Then walk us through the lawsuit in question here. What's being alleged? There are three claims that are being alleged on behalf of all past and current female varsity student athletes. One, a denial of equal athletic financial aid. Two, a denial of equal athletic benefits and treatments. And three, retaliation against certain track and field uh, members, student athletes, uh, by a coach who expressed disappointment and threatened, uh, allegedly threatened removal from the team uh, nine days after uh, the original lawsuit was, was filed. So who are the plaintiffs in this case? The plaintiffs in this case are 11 former members of the uh, the varsity rowing team, which was discontinued by uh, SCSU in the spring of 2021, and six uh, track and field uh, student athletes for a total of 17 named plaintiffs. But understand, it's, again, it's being brought on behalf of all current and former uh, female varsity student athletes. Are, are you surprised that Judge Robinson ruled as he did on this matter? Well, I, I mean, Judge Robinson issued a very careful ruling. It wasn't surprising, except that uh, the judge did break new grounds in some of the theories that he let go forward, uh, which was very interesting. For example, this idea of lost opportunity to compete for athletic scholarships, which had not been recognized before by uh, any court. The judge is ruling is really interesting because he does parse out which claims some of the plaintiffs, uh, named plaintiffs, are able to pursue and which they are not. And breaking those down would take more time than we have uh, in this program. But the most important issues are that he's allowing uh, this theory of lost opportunity to compete, uh, to go forward with respect to the members of the uh, rowing team, and also is recognizing, at least for the purposes of getting an order, uh, requiring the school uh, to do better, injunctive relief, uh, that that can be uh, asserted on behalf of psychological injury from being treated as allegedly second-class citizens. Right. And, it, you know, it would be groundbreaking. So exactly what precedent will this set for the issue of compensation for college athletes? Well, uh, the, the precedent will be set specifically with respect to this idea of of lost opportunity and the kinds of claims that female student athletes can assert in court, because realize that most of these cases have focused on uh, orders uh, from uh, federal courts requiring uh, the schools to do better, to comply uh, with Title IX. Uh, this is uh, believed to be uh, one of the few cases uh, where money damages are at issue. And you're talking about potentially uh, six, maybe even a low seven figure sum with respect to money damages for a uh, lost uh, opportunity. There are also potentially other claims that I won't get into uh, where there could be uh, money damages. And we haven't even yet talked about the claim for retaliation, which also raises very interesting issues. Right. And I want to touch on that in a bit. But do you think this will open the floodgates for similar lawsuits? I don't know about floodgates. That word is sometimes used to suggest that there are people just waiting in the wings, getting ready to file a whole bunch of copycat lawsuits. Understand that this uh, lawsuit is not going to be fully litigated if it goes to trial for at least another year or so. Depending on what happens with this ruling and if it's appealed, depending on what the Ninth Circuit says and even potentially the U.S. Supreme Court, it could very well set a standard that 
either results in further litigation or, barring litigation, changes in the way uh, female and male varsity sports are funded and how those funds are allocated. As you mentioned earlier, there, there is this issue of retaliation in this case. After the lawsuit uh, was initially filed, one of the coaches listed in the complaint said during a Zoom call that the athletes could be removed from the team if they participated in the suit. So how will this impact these claims? We're talking about a distinct claim. This is the third claim, the retaliation claim. And in this claim, we are only talking about uh, five uh, of the track and field team members who participated in the Zoom call, who claim that this coach said she was disappointed in their participation and it could result in the removal of the team from the team. Uh, the issue there is whether the threat of removal was sufficient to constitute an adverse action that uh, triggers a right uh, to uh, file a lawsuit for retaliation. And Judge Robinson said, yeah, on its face, sure, a threat of removal could very well dissuade a reasonable person from exercising their rights to file a lawsuit or issue a complaint about uh, Title VII violations. And therefore, I am going to consider that sufficient to move forward. But again, uh, whether this was said or not is entirely clear because uh, plaintiffs uh, have said that they don't have access to the Zoom tape yet because San Diego State hasn't yet released it. That's one of the many things that will be uncovered in discovery as this case moves to the next stage. Before we move on, I guess I should also ask, and what exactly is that next stage? And that's a great question because the the judge in his order said, the next stage is this. Plaintiffs, if you want to fix some of the defects that I have identified with respect to the standing of some plaintiffs and uh, with respect to the availability of certain kinds of Uh, relief based on what you have alleged. You've got 30 days to do it. So expect to see something uh, of an amended complaint uh, in May. If no amended complaint is filed, however, this case will move in as it has been circumscribed by Judge Robinson to the next phase of discovery. And that means depositions, requests for documents, and so on. And that's where it gets very interesting because then you're going to have these student athletes uh, testifying under oath, these coaches under oath, and you're going to see some very interesting facts coming out as a result of this lawsuit, which could lead to changes in the way some of these theories are presented in court. In a statement on the matter, SDSU said, quote, the court expressly carved out any opinion about whether the plaintiffs would be able to prove any monetary damages at some point in the future, end quote. What do they mean by that? They mean that what is uh, what the plaintiffs have so far said is that, uh, well, uh, based on our uh, based on our sifting of the uh, data and so forth, it suggests that some of the uh, plaintiffs may have lost somewhere in excess of uh, $2,000, the the rowing plaintiffs in particular, because of an inability to compete fairly with other male athletes. But they haven't specifically said concretely how each of them uh, would have lost a certain amount of money. It was too early, said Judge Robinson, uh, to determine that. Uh, But uh, the judge specifically did reserve and said it it may be possible that that no monetary damages at all will be recovered. That's why you have to wait to go beyond 
the pleading stage. All we have now is the complaint, the amended complaint, as it happens, as it was filed, and the order on a motion to dismiss. There is an awful lot of other stuff that will have to take place. Discovery, requests from both sides about what they've got that will have to take place to determine how strong each side's case is. And at some point, you can expect, I would expect, there would be some effort to settle this through uh, mediation. But if it's if it's not settled uh, through a mediation or through the intervention of a, a U.S. magistrate court judge, uh, then a trial uh, will ultimately depend on who is believed and who has the who has the better story. You know, I mean, this is a landmark case. So if they do win this, how could it potentially change how college athletes are compensated? I mean, would this just impact female athletes or would it impact male athletes, too, who perhaps weren't as highly recruited uh, and therefore received less scholarship money? It's going to have a big impact across all sports and way beyond SDSU. Understand that Title uh, IX is focused, however, on uh, the uh, fair allocation of funds to women and men to create a level playing field uh, so that uh, women are entitled to the same kind of resources with respect to intercollegiate and interscholastic sport as men are. Uh, You can fully expect that depending on how this case ultimately comes out, People will be watching, and it could very well affect who gets what going forward. Title IX is not concerned specifically with the fair allocation of resources across sports. That's an interesting question. What Title IX is concerned about is making sure that men and women in college sports have the same opportunity to compete for resources that are available. Speaking of compensation, since that's what we've been talking about here today, what's the latest with endorsement deals for NCAA athletes, also known as those NIL deals? Yeah, the NIL deals, very, very interesting because, of course, San Diego State has a relatively limited exposure to NIL when you compare to some of these huge foundations uh, in some states, uh, particularly when you're talking about Uh, the South, uh, Alabama, and and places like that, Uh, it will be very interesting to see what happens with this next level of NAL. It's only been around for a couple of years. Uh, You can expect uh, that that is going to become more and more of an issue. And since we are talking about the competitive landscape, it will be very interesting to see how that affects the uh, competitive landscape in both women's and men's collegiate sports. That's not something necessarily that Title IX will have a lot to say about, except to the extent that the schools control those funds. NIL uh, is this brave new world of uh, college uh, sports funding. And where that ends up and its intersection with Title IX is to be determined. All of this is something we'll be keeping our eye on. I've been speaking with legal analyst Dan Eaton. Dan, thank you so much for your... (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Dan, thanks for talking with us today. And as always, thanks for your insight. Thank you, Jay.
Coming up, the conversation continues with how women are represented in sports and what's changing about that. The demand will be there and ultimately that will force the change. But I think it's slower than, than we would all want. And it can be sort of self-perpetuating unless certain groups take the stronger stance. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. An ongoing Title IX lawsuit involving athletes from San Diego State University is raising questions about equality in sports. Already, a federal judge in San Diego has ruled that the plaintiffs can seek damages from the university on the grounds of unfair scholarship funding due to gender. But beyond this legal battle are deeper issues about how women in sports are both compensated and valued by society at large. Joining me now with more is Sophie Goldschmidt, president and CEO of U.S. Ski and Snowboard and former CEO of the World Surf League. Sophie, welcome to the program. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So, Sophie, uh, first things first, what role do you see Title IX playing in the larger conversation about equality in sports? I think it plays a very important role. I think, having said that, progress needs to continue to happen, and it's not like we can just rely on Title IX to get us to where we ultimately should be and uh, sort of full equality across all levels of sport. But I think it was pretty groundbreaking legislation that was put in place um, decades ago, um, which definitely accelerated um, equality in women's sports at the collegiate level, while there's still some gaps um, and it's not where it needs to be. Um, I think it's been an important step in the movement. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully more to come. And, you know, outside of compensation, one of the most glaring examples of the gender gap in sports is how coverage of women's sports uh, really differs from their male counterparts. Um, Why does this gap persist, you think? Uh, I think all sorts of reasons. I think, you know, society has just been sort of trained one way for for so long. There were so many more um, male pro sports and just sport in general sort of opportunities, whether it was at the collegiate level or at the pro level. Um, And society just became used to um, showcasing and broadcasting that and covering it in in the media. Um, And that's what media companies became used to and advertising companies. And it sort of becomes a bit of a virtuous circle. But as I think we've seen, especially in recent months, there is a real appetite for, for women's sports. You know, the whole famous Billie Jean King quote, if you see it, then you can believe it. And, you know, young girls are now growing up believing more than ever that they have an opportunity to make a career in sports, either as an athlete or working in the sports. And so I think, you know, the demand will be there and ultimately that will force the change. Um, but I think it's it's slower than than we would all um, want. And it 
can be sort of self-perpetuating unless certain groups take kind of a stronger stance. And I think, you know, pointing to the stats, pointing to the facts and the ratings, you know, recently um, the women's NCAA basketball tournament, that obviously got a huge amount of exposure. The fact that those final games rated more highly than some NBA games, I think was um, very powerful, as well as various other important women's um, games and matches that have really cut through and garnered huge audiences. And that's without nearly the same promotion and exposure so it shows that there is an appetite and I hope that that will you know now begin to be more fairly represented in what we see and read and are able to to watch right I mean and as you mentioned there's there's an appetite for this but you know there's there's a lot of resources in advertising uh, that go into marketing men's athletics as you mentioned um, and we typically don't see that for women's athletics uh, we can look at the NBA versus WNBA. Um, as you kind of pointed to there, what do you think is needed to get the same resources and publicity for women's sports? I think it's going to take a team effort. I think every sort of stakeholder within the ecosystem, I think that, you know, the women's sports themselves and the athletes are doing a such much better job of promoting themselves and telling their stories and they need to do better. Let's make it as compelling as possible. Let's bring these personalities to life. Let's showcase this charisma. Let's get more innovative. Let's do things that maybe men's sports can't do. Um, then the media companies need to step up, look at the data, look at the ratings. There's absolutely no reason that there should be the gap in exposure that there is. So media companies do the right thing. Um, then on the um, just general press coverage front, um, we know now that there is an appetite and that people want to follow these sports. Um, so dedicate some different resource to it. It may mean that you need to hire different journalists. And look, it's at a time when economically some of these media companies are struggling and looking to cut costs rather than increase costs. So um, I think, you know, we need to sort of push from all directions and realize we're in it together. And it's not neither or. It's not about necessarily taking away from the men's sports at all. This is complementary and additive. Um, yes, there's overlap. Some of the audiences are the same, but there's also a new audience you can reach through women's sports, which can drive greater ratings, um, a new demographic, a new commercial interest. Um, and ultimately, look, a lot of this is driven by the fans and consumer and then the commercial brands. The commercial brands pay for the advertising, whether it's in TV or in different magazines and publications or on social channels. Um, and so I think them sort of putting their money where their mouth is. And, you know, fair play to them. We've seen some brands step up in a major way. Anheuser-Busch with their Michelob Ultra um, commitment, um, Ally, what they've done in soccer, um, Google's beginning to, to invest more. So we are seeing some brands really begin to cut through um, and we need more of it. You know, they're doing that not to make us feel good. They're doing that because it's a good business decision. So I hope it's just a matter of when we catch up, not if. Um, and hopefully by all working together, um, we can see some further fundamental change really quickly. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS, and I'm talking about equality and equity in sports with Sophie Goldschmidt, president and CEO of U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Um, Sophie, you know, compensation is a big part of this conversation. For example, when you were CEO of the World Surf League, you instituted equal prize money for male and female competitors. Do you think that had a big impact on this issue? I think it had an impact, yes. I think, look, there isn't a silver bullet to sort of solving this equality issue, but I think pay 
is one important component. And I think, A, the women deserved it. It was sort of almost paying it forward for years of being underpaid. I think um, it gets a different conversation going. You know, the pay gap is always something that garners attention. So I think it helped to sort of draw attention to it for sort of other reasons as well. Um, and ultimately, you know, it's the right thing to do. It has to make business sense as well. I think, look, if some um, organizations started paying um, the same for female athletes as male when they're not making the same revenues, then those leagues wouldn't be sustainable. So, you know, it's it's sort of one step at a time and it's got to be done in a way that isn't going to bankrupt um, a sports league. Um, but for us in surfing, it was absolutely the right time. We could justify it. We could afford it. Um, and it certainly sparked further change and other organizations in the sport stepping up, which was which was awesome to see. Are there any sports that you feel are, are really, really leading the way um, when it comes to compensation for women athletes? Um, well, I, look, I would say snow sports, I think, has been progressive and ahead of its time in many ways. Um, we have a World Cup schedule where our athletes compete around the world. And we've had equal prize money in snow sports for many years. Um, so way ahead of many organizations, um, which we're really proud of. Um, also, you know, just how well the women have done in the US, most notably Michaela Schiffer recently, who became the winningest best alpine skier in the world ever man or woman she broke every record um so when you have those kind of opportunities that transcend your sport and kind of even you know cut through in society in a different way it led to her being named one of um time's most influential top 100 people so um i think you know snow sports has done a really good job i think when you look back tennis um was very pioneering i worked in tennis earlier on in my career thanks to Billie Jean King, who was actually part of Title IX. Um, and they had equal prize money at certain events. They still actually don't have it at all events. So they kind of have sort of maybe lost a little bit of momentum. But I think when you look back to what they were doing 30, 40 years ago, kind of starting the conversation, you know, often paying women the same as men that long ago, that was very pioneering and, and groundbreaking. So I think there are, you know, different um, examples. Um, obviously, what the women's uh, national team fought for in soccer, um, getting equal pay for the national team um, was very powerful and certainly got the conversation going at another level. Um, at the league level, NWSL players certainly aren't making close to what MLS players are making on the men's side, um, but hopefully that will change. I think, look, another key factor is a lot of these women's sports are quite new compared to the men's at a professional level. Um, and these things do take time. Um, they can't change overnight because they're not sustainable necessarily. Sometimes they can, but you've got to keep seeing the progress. Um, and that's where it's been, you know, a little bit up and down. Um, and I think that's that's what we've got to keep pushing for. We need consistent progress heading in the right direction on all fronts from a pay, from an exposure standpoint, um, from a marketing standpoint. You know, we need to keep heading in the right direction because these women deserve it. And it's what society is demanding. I feel like it's this debate over whether or not to go ahead and make the investment in marketing, and then we'll see equal pay for women, or to make sure the audience is there first, and then make the investment. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think there is a bit of a leap of faith. And I think enough now has been proven to show that the audience is there. And there is the demand. 
but you need to make it easier for people to engage. You know, you're you're getting these significant audiences for certain events without the marketing and promotion. So just imagine if there was more marketing and promotion. So let's give it a chance. Look, the signs are there that it's more than a trend. It's, you know, clear that this is here to stay. So how much do you want to accelerate it? Because, um, it, and again, it's, it's, it's adding to the mix. I don't feel, I think sometimes people sort of think, oh, if we give more to women, we're taking it away from men. No, that, that's not what we're talking about. You know, there's a big enough audience to support both. Sports fans like all sports in general. There are some that are very focused, but there's a lot that will dip between different sports. It depends what's on and what time works with their schedule and what personalities are competing that day. So I really feel it's additive to the pie rather than sort of taking away. And would you say that the actual marketing of women's sports is fundamentally different from men's sports in any way? Yes and no. I mean, I think there's some similarities and some traits that work across both genders, but then there's some things that are unique to each. I mean, I think on the women's side, well, certainly from a fan perspective, I think the storytelling and getting a little bit deeper, feeling more of a relevance I know from some of the research we've done at organizations I've been at is really important. It's not just about the global superstars and the the facts and the stats. They want to get a little bit deeper and kind of feel that connection. So I think there is a way to shape it slightly differently. But I think there are some themes that are very consistent across both as well. So I think it's kind of a mix, to be honest, because, look, fans of women's sports aren't just women. I think you'll find, actually, if anything, it's more men than women watch women's sports. Um, so you want to appeal we want the audience to be as big as possible. I mean, of course, I want women, but I want as many men as well. So I think, you know, that's where the messaging sort of depends a little bit on the demographic and who you're hitting rather than what the sport is per se. And here locally, our professional women's soccer club, San Diego Wave, they enjoy a a really loyal fan base. Uh, What role do you think these sort of grassroots fan bases play in furthering this conversation about equality in sports? I think they're absolutely fundamental. Um, I think one thing that can help accelerate the growth is having packed stadiums, having people that are willing to buy tickets. In the past, one of the revenue streams where there has been quite a difference is ticket sales. Men's sports, again, it's a bit of a generalization, but in general have had much bigger audiences and they've been able to charge higher ticket prices. And that's a pretty key revenue item that determines how much people are paid and how much goes into marketing, et cetera. And the grassroots controls that. That's the fans, them showing up, them being willing to not pay too much that it becomes unaffordable, but to pay a good ticket price so that ultimately those organizations can invest back in players and the teams and the marketing around the teams is really important. So I think the grassroots area has a huge role to play and really igniting those fan bases and getting them engaged. Because by the way, the bigger the fan base, then also commercially for sponsors, it becomes more interesting. If, you know, the San Diego wave is getting 10,000 versus 30,000 to a game, you know, you would almost as a sponsor, I'm going to pay two or three times as much depending how big your fan base is. So, um, yeah, I think there is sort of a direct correlation. And I think um, that fan and grassroots support is really, really important and can be kind of a, a bit of a game changer. Because I think, again, if you get that connection with the athletes, I think the way that the pros on those teams can engage in the community, can go to the schools, can go to the local clubs, can really build that relationship. I think that's something there's the opportunity for female athletes to do even better than the male athletes and a lot of the men do it very well by the way but you know why not really excel 
in that area from a female perspective, if that's going to be a bit, bit of a differentiator differentiator and allow you to, to grow your fan base more quickly. It's, that would seem like a no-brainer. I've been speaking with Sophie Goldschmidt, president and CEO of U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Sophie, thanks so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Coming up, the Wave FC is having a good season. We'll talk about what's ahead for the team. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The San Diego Wave FC defeated the Houston Dash 3-0 on Saturday, putting the Wave in third place in the National Women's Soccer League standings. Here's what Wave head coach Casey Stoney had to say after the Wave's decisive road win. I'm really, really, really proud of the players. It's been a tough three weeks and we could have come off the back of Washington and had a very different response, but this group is incredible. You know, and they just, they never cease to amaze me in terms of the people in this group and the, what they're able to deliver in, in very difficult circumstances. The team returns to home turf at Snapdragon Stadium on Friday in hopes it can get closer to the top of the league. Here to share more on how the team is doing in its sophomore season is San Diego Wave team president Jill Ellis. Jill, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So on our program today, we've been talking about Title IX and the topic of gender equality in sports. How do you view the state of gender equality in soccer today and, and in sports in general? Well, I think we've, we've still got a long way to go. I think that's probably the narrative you hear from most, uh, most people in sports, uh, either gender. It's, um, I think we've still got you know, a massive gap to close. Um, but you know, I, I, I certainly think the investment is starting to show returns, meaning that you know, now you look globally and you see full stadiums. Um, you see sponsors starting to step up. Um, so I think people are recognizing that this, you know, it's it's a viable business model and it's it's something that I think people are acknowledging now and then finally. And so I, I you know, with the investment, with better TV deals, with full stadiums, you know, that helps obviously push the the battle for pay as well. Um, you know, I, I work for an owner and obviously we're it's a it's a business model revenue but also you know how you we make sure that how we treat the players you know the um the resources they have of it available to them is is also where i think the gap has really closed you know it used to be in years past where 
there wasn't a weight room and there wasn't charter flights. And, and now those are becoming more and more commonplace. So yeah, summary, I think we've made strides, but still a big push in terms of television rights and, and sponsorship deals. All right. Well, we definitely want to talk about the successful first season the Wave had for an expansion team last year, making it to the semifinals. What's been key to avoiding a sophomore slump this season? Well, I think we did. I think we did a great job in the off season. Of, you always want to sort of strengthen from year to year. You know, when I was a college coach, it always you know you always recruited one more as good as your best. So I think you know, we've we've done a good job of bringing in. Um, some additional pieces, you know, Danny Colaprico has come in and, and been an immediate impact, Rachel Hill. So I think, you know, those added to um, the current roster that we had, I think has definitely helped us. I think, you know, overall, though, everyone just kind of feels, you know, last year we had four months to launch. It was crazy. It was madness. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of processes in place. And I think now we've, you know, everyone feels just a lot more uh, established, a lot more just in terms of our processes and, and what we want to do, everything from selling tickets to our training ground where the players train to upgrading our facilities. I think all these things have helped us really remain focused and, and hungry. I think that's the bottom line. we got a coach that wants to win and a, and a group of players that are committed to, to and motivated. Mm. And in last weekend's match, star forward Alex Morgan scored her fifth goal of the season. What have you seen from her? I mean, everything, tremendous leadership, you know, both on and off the pitch. I think, you know, Alex is someone that uh, she's a she's a fierce competitor, um, obviously a tremendous forward. I had the privilege of coaching Alex with the women's national team. And so I know what she can do on the pitch and a prolific goal scorer. So it leads in that way, but also, you know, recognizes we've got young players coming in, new players to the league and, you know, really tries to make them feel welcome. And, and I think be, by being a good pro, she sets a good example. You know, she's a very good professional. So and I think she's happy. I think she's really excited to be in Southern California, living here close to her family. And I think that just helps the overall, um, you know, the holistic approach to, to a sport, really. Right. And, and San Diego's Sierra Inge uh, scored her first <laughs> career goal Saturday. What impressed you most about her rookie season? For a rookie season to come in, and and now she started a couple of games and she scored. It's pretty impressive, you know, because the jump from college to the pros is um, it sometimes it can it can be a big leap. So I think she's integrated incredibly well. Really smart player, very comfortable on the ball. You know, she's she plays with great composure and sophistication, and she has some versatility. You know, we've played her in the back line, uh, we've played her in the midfield. And uh, she's, yeah, I mean, for, for a young player coming in and, and starting, she's adapted incredibly well. And earlier you mentioned the younger players coming into the league. Uh, another San Diegan, 15-year-old Melanie Barsenas, made her debut for the club earlier this season and made history in the process as, as the youngest player in the National Women's Soccer League match. How has that process been, uh, bringing in such a young player into professional soccer? Well, I think, you know, obviously it's something that Casey and I and, and our GM Molly discussed. You know, you have to make sure because, again, you, you want the experience to be positive. And obviously there's um, there's the soccer side and then there's the social side in terms of, of, of adapting. So I think, you know, she's been in with us for a year before we signed her. She'd been training. The players were very comfortable with her. I mean, there's no doubt about her talent. Um, but again, you want to make sure it's a positive experience. So you know, protecting her a little bit from media and, and also making sure that we're, you know, uh, that our coach is using her in moments that, uh, you know, really 
you don't want her to come in and play 90 minutes every game because it's just not something she's used to. So you bring them along. And, and I think we've done a really good job of just investing in her and acknowledging that, yes, she's young, but she's obviously very, very special. You know, to that point, um, how important is it that your players are, are in a good headspace? They're happy about their situation. They've got the support and resources that they need. Um, how important is that? I mean, I think it's honestly, it's critical. You can put great talent on on a pitch and, and not get results. And, and sometimes you can have a less talented team and get good results. You know, I think a, a coach's job is, uh, I always like to say they're sort of a, a caretaker of, of, uh, of souls, really. They, you know, they're trying to help young people achieve ambition. And so that's making sure that you approach them, not just as a commodity on the pitch, that they are people, that you connect with them outside of there in terms of, you know, getting to know them and their family situation, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, the, the idea now is you just coach the athlete. It's, it's the coaching of the past. I think now you've got to coach the, the person. And that means who they are both in your locker room and on the pitch and in their own environment. So I think it's very important that players mentally are uh, feeling valued, have clarity and, and really feel like they're, they're being uh, respected. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS, and I'm speaking with Jill Ellis, president of the San Diego Wave FC. And, you know, I, I can't uh, not mention this. You know, earlier this month, you were inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame, uh, along with another local soccer legend in San Diego, Landon Donovan. So uh, lots of history being made uh, with the Wave in particular. So first of all, congratulations on that honor. Uh, and what was that experience like for you? Um, it was uh, it was it was amazing. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like um, you know, in your lives, you kind of go through and you do your work. And there's very few moments, especially as a coach, that you actually look backwards. Like it's always about what's next. And it was it was actually a moment to really look back on you know thirty years almost, um, and to realize how many amazing people have crossed my path and how influenced I've been whether it's from players to coaches to mentors to family. So it was truly in a chance to kind of acknowledge all those that had a, a massive role to play in, in my journey. And it just, yeah, it's humbling. I mean, you, you know, you kind of just realize that it, it, it truly takes a village and it's a tremendous honor, but you don't get there alone. So, um, but it was, it was a nice moment to reflect. Hmm. Jill, last Thursday, Major League Soccer, the top men's league in the country, announced San Diego will be home to its 30th franchise. What does San Diego getting an MLS franchise mean for, for soccer in San Diego? Well, I think it's, um, you know, there's such history and tradition here. You know, we've had amazing players come out of this, um, this area. And, you know, there was a women's professional team uh, probably over 10, 12 years ago. And so to have, you know, professional soccer here, I think validates this, you know, as a, a soccer community, as a sporting community. Um, you know, I like to think that they've talked about a team coming for a while. And, and I think that, you know, in truth, how well the wave have done in terms of uh, attendance and, you know, creating a synergy, um, both ourselves and, and the loyal are here. And so I think it's uh, it's helped kind of, I think, pave the way for, for this commitment. It's, it's a massive commitment. But I just think, again, it brings our sport to the forefront. And so I think it benefits you know, everybody um, in our community to, you know, to have a soccer be showcased. I mean, I think we've got, you know, we've shown that when you can have world-class players, you know, world champions, Olympic champions on the pitch, people want to come out and watch. They want to see that that high level of talent. 
Mm. And on Friday, the Wave uh, will take the pitch at Snapdragon to take on Portland. What are you, what, what are you, where's your headspace on that match and what should fans be looking out for? Well, it is. You mentioned this. Uh, well, I think Casey, or you mentioned it earlier. It is a big match because um, you know we're. I think we're tied for points. They're ahead of us on goal differential. So between the top three teams, there's only a one point difference. And you know you want to you want to keep uh, you want to pick up points at home. So there, they just had a, also a very big result. I think they had a four one victory. So they're feeling feeling good. Uh, listen, on the pitch is going to be again. Sophia Smith is. You know, like Alex Morgan, she's a forward for the U.S. Women's National Team. So I think there's going to be some star power out there. I think it's going to be a really intense match, uh, exciting. Uh, we're going to obviously push for a big crowd Friday night to help help push us uh, push us over the edge. But it's going to be highly competitive, um, and I think it's a game that really matters. So we definitely want the fans out to support us and push us. Yeah. Speaking of the fans, you're going to be honoring the military in that match. Tell us more about that. Yeah, military appreciation. I, I mean, you know, I... Uh, well, I'm in the military. You know, my father was in the Royal Marines uh, when I grew up in England. So I'm, I've, I've lived that life, you know, traveling around and obviously just, you know, on a personal level, tremendous respect and, and value uh, in, our, in our military community. So to be able to honor them, I think is, is going to be special. I think we're going to have a flyover and, you know, obviously invite a lot of, a lot of local. I mean, this is what's so beautiful about San Diego. I mean, it's like every um, branch of the military is represented here. So I think just to kind of uh, celebrate that and a chance to say thank you. Um, so I think it's gonna be great. I think we'll have we'll have specific merchandise as well to support that, which is great. But listen, I think anytime we can celebrate our community in some way and some facet of it, I think it's um, it, you know really shows I think our commitment to trying to be a, a team that is a part and a fabric of this community. Yeah. And finally, the FIFA Women's World Cup is coming up fast. It starts July 20th and is taking place in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, A few Wave players will be playing there, notably Alex Morgan for the U.S., but also goalkeeper Kaylin uh, Sheridan for Canada. As a former World Cup winning coach, will you be sharing any advice with them before the World Cup kicks off? (laughs) Well, you know, Kaylin's, Kaylin's playing for Canada. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we, yeah, we'll have Sophia Jakobsen there representing Sweden. I mean, we, you know, it, it's a tremendous honor for them. I think the, you know, right now, I'm not sure the rosters have been named and I know players get superstitious. Um, but yes, I think we'll have, we'll have strong representation. I think Naomi Gurma also from our team will be there. But I mean, the reality is when you go to a World Cup, there's always going to be some form of adversity, whether it's losing in your opening game, whether it's picking up, you know, injuries on your team. It, it's the team that kind of can can ride that and um, stay calm, stay in the moment, and stay together. I think is is a big part of it, and obviously preparation. So I would just tell them just to, uh, you know, it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster, but to put their seatbelt on, enjoy the ride, and, and to soak it all in. I think my first World Cup, I didn't really, you know, afterwards give myself time to kind of feel feel what it was and how special it was but I made sure in 19 to you know to really kind of take a moment on there on the final game and and just take it all in and so that's what would be my advice to them enjoy themselves all right well we are wishing the best to uh those who are playing in the world cup and also on your season thank you yeah yeah I've been speaking with Jill Ellis, National Soccer Hall of Fame member and president of the San Diego Wave FC As always, Jill, it's good talking with you. Thank you so much for having us. What are your thoughts on how women are compensated and represented in sports? 
give us a call, 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. Join us again tomorrow at noon. We are talking about Memorial Day. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.